Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 25. Welcome to Christ the King, particularly if you're visiting with us today. Um, we have been in a lengthy sermon series through the books of First and Second Samuel, and if you've been here recently, you know that things are getting a little complex. And uh, in fact, someone in the nine o'clock service said that I ought to put a warning label at the front of the sermon this morning in order to say that we're going to be on a bit of a, of a journey to understand the significance of what's happening in chapter five of Second Samuel. Hang in there with me, and I hope that I can somehow bring it to bear in a way that um, you'll sense the sense the significance of it. It's difficult to say as we come into 2 Samuel 5 when exactly things changed for the elders of the tribes of Israel. But it's safe to say it had taken some time. Now I've been away for two Sundays from Christ the King, but in those two weeks a lot of time has passed in 2 Samuel. And if you look back at chapter 2, verse 11, we read that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah for seven and a half years, it says in verse 11. But of course, it was only over the house of Judah. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that alongside that, then Abner, the commander of Saul's army, who has, of course, died at the end of 1 Samuel, had taken Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and made him king over Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel, the text says. So you remember, we had these two things happening. But Ishbosheth is dead now, murdered in his sleep, in fact. And the final line from last week in 2 Samuel chapter 4 says, they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. But at that point, it's not yet full speed ahead for David. You sort of have to piece this together. But according to verse 10 of chapter 2, Ishbosheth, who's now dead, had reigned for two years. David was king in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half, which means that the most natural way to read this is that between the end of 2 Samuel 4 and the beginning of 2 Samuel 5 is something like five years. There are five years there in that little word then that opens chapter 5. And unless we're careful, we forget that. We just read right from 4.12 into 5 verse 1 as if it's just an automatic consequence that once Ishbosheth is out of the way, it's now David's time, which would be a mistake. Because, in fact, that's precisely not what we're to make of the progression that's been happening in these early chapters of 2 Samuel. If we've seen anything from our study in 1 Samuel, and then especially from the time spent in these last three chapters of 2 Samuel, one thing that's clear is that all human efforts to either destroy or establish David's kingdom haven't worked. A significant point of the Samuel narratives is that David is God's king. 
And brothers and sisters, that means that David's going to receive the kingdom when God determines he's going to receive it. And it's been, if you've been with us, a long journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. From 1 Samuel 16, where David was anointed to be God's king in Bethlehem, you remember. Now to 2 Samuel 5, where the Lord will establish him as king. So I think the key verse in 2 Samuel 5 is actually right in the middle of the chapter. In verse 12, look there for a moment. It says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he, the Lord, had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his, that is the Lord's, people, Israel. 2 Samuel 5 is this pivotal chapter in 1 and 2 Samuel. It brings to a climax much of what has preceded it. It introduces much of what is to follow. It's the pivot because it's the conclusion of the long series of narratives that deal with David's rise to the throne in Israel. It then launches us into another long series of narratives that will portray the reign of David in all of its complexity. And in this pivotal chapter... In 2 Samuel 5, do you hear the emphasis of verse 12? The emphasis isn't on David. It's on the Lord, who in establishing David as king over Israel, isn't acting for the sake of David. He's acting for the sake of his people. And it's perhaps easy to lose sight of that, given how much we've focused sort of naturally, on Saul and then David in these books. But let me take you back to something Samuel said long ago at Gilgal back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. At what I argued in 1 Samuel 12 was the critical covenant renewal ceremony for the people of God at the inauguration of Saul's reign, right? I mean, if you can go back that far in your mind, you can turn there if you want. 1 Samuel 12, where Samuel instructs the people concerning how this idea of human kingship is to work in Israel when the fundamental fact of Israel's existence is that Yahweh is their great king. Human kingship isn't wrong necessarily, but the problem was that Israel had wanted a king like all the nations. You remember how we went through all of that. And in 1 Samuel 11, Saul got it right. Towards the end of the chapter, he wants to renew the kingdom. And it was the Lord's kingdom, I argued, that they needed to renew. And as they do that, do you remember that what Samuel says is the greater purpose behind what the Lord is doing in all of this? This is 1 Samuel 12, verse 22. The people have acknowledged that they were wrong in how they asked for a king. But Samuel says, essentially, backing up a little bit, don't be afraid. Kingship can work so long as you continue to serve the Lord as your ultimate king. Then verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
Now, in all of this, the purposes of the Lord are centered clearly in the continuance of his people. That's what's supposed to be going on as we move through Samuel. So here we are now in 2 Samuel 5, as David's finally made the king of all Israel. And 2 Samuel 5, verse 12 says, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the Lord's people, Israel. It's a critical statement. Of course, it's critical first because David recognizes that it's the Lord who has established him as king over Israel, which is important to say because we've just had two weeks of lies and betrayal and murder and ambition and treachery and right at the end of it all. It wasn't Abner or Joab or Rechab or Bena who established David's kingdom. It was the Lord. But then secondly, and I think perhaps even more importantly now in this context, David knew why the Lord had made him king. It was for the sake of the Lord's people. Okay, so that's what I think is the key verse. Now, this chapter is the pivot where David's the king, fully the king. If that's what David knows, according to 2 Samuel 5, verse 12, then I think the great biblical question behind that statement in verse 12 is this. What is God's purpose for his people Israel? How would you answer that? How would David answer that, do you think? Because if what David knows is that he's king for the sake of the Lord's people, then what David does as king in this chapter is going to be linked to what God's purpose is for his people. That's sort of my controlling thesis of this sermon. Does that make sense? So, brothers and sisters, what's God's primary purpose for his people? Samuel said at Gilgal, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, on one level, then, it'd be entirely correct theologically to say that God's ultimate purpose for his people is God's own glory for his great name's sake. And I'm happy with that answer. But I'm more asking how the people of God are to bring about this glory of God, this great name of the Lord. What happens through them that accomplishes that? So this is Old Testament 101, I realize, but it's important to review this because whatever that is, David's kingship is tied up in it. And I think the best answer to that question could be found if you go back to the very starting point of the people of Israel which, of course, would be Genesis 12. Genesis 12. So if you want to turn to Genesis 12 now, you can. Genesis 12, lots happens in Genesis 1 to 11, but Israel, the story of Israel proper sort of begins Genesis 12 with Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. There we go. 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and him who dishonors, I will curse. And then here's the key line. Here's what I suggest is the primary purpose for the people of God. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's where this is going ultimately, Abram. Your family will bless all the families of the earth. And Roger mentioned this in his sermon two weeks ago. But where is David when he reigns for seven and a half years as king over Judah? The answer is, David's in Hebron. That's where the Lord told him to go in 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, which perhaps seems strange in a way because Hebron hasn't even been mentioned in Samuel before that. Why Hebron? Why is all this? Why do the tribes come to David at Hebron at the beginning of our chapter? And here you have to know something about the early parts of Genesis, because I think the point is that it would not it it would not be possible for David to become king in Hebron and not be conscious of the promises made to Abraham. Because above all, if you know the early parts of Genesis, Hebron is linked to Abraham. So if you still are there in Genesis, in Genesis 13, after Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord tells Abram to look around and to walk through the length and the breadth of the land. And he says this in Genesis 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Verse 18 says, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is where Abram settles in the land. And if you know Genesis, Sarah dies there. And in Genesis 23, Abram buys this cave from Ephron the Hittite there in Hebron, or the, the area later called Hebron, to bury his wife. It's the first piece of the promised land that belonged to the Lord's people. So that biblically, Hebron becomes the key place that's identified with Abraham and Sarah and even Isaac, the patriarchs in general. So as the key place associated with them, Hebron would, of course, be associated with the promises made by the Lord to Abraham, you see. That's the point. David's there now. As king, the Lord says, go there. That's where you'll be king. And so verse one of second Samuel five, our chapter says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. The place associated with the promises of God given to Abraham. Five years have passed. They come. They give three reasons why now is the time to accept David as the legitimate ruler over the entire nation. They just say, first of all, we are your bone and flesh. We're united with you. Probably they mean by kinship, this goes back <laughs> to a common starting point. 
They say, secondly, in verse 2, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. You have been our savior. We saw this repeatedly in 1 Samuel in our, in our study, that David saves the people from their enemies time and again. They're acknowledging that. And then thirdly, most significantly, they recognize that the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. You are the one whom the Lord has chosen. They acknowledge this. It took five years, brothers and sisters. But when we now hear the elders of Israel come to David in Hebron and speak of the Lord's promise to him, we know that they're just at last acknowledging the truth that we've known and that many in Israel knew, at least since the young shepherd boy had slain Goliath. The shepherd boy whom they had to fetch from the field of whom the Lord had said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him. This is he. So that's what they now do. 2 Samuel 5, verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And you know that this is the actual official moment now, because then in verses 4 and 5 of our chapter, you get the summary statement about the length of David's reign, which is sort of a formulaic beginning for all the kings of Israel. When you read about them through the Old Testament, they start by saying so-and-so reigned for such many years in such and such a place. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, here we go. Because now that God's king is on the throne of all Israel, what will he do? What's the first thing that the narrator of Samuel talks about whether or not it's chronological sequence is another matter in this chapter. What's the first thing that the narrator of Samuel talks about after David's enthronement over all Israel in Hebron? It's in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So now here's the question that's been taking up my mind much of this week. Why Jerusalem? Why is this the first act of the new king that the narrator of Samuel points out after he had ruled over seven years in Abraham's Hebron, right? Here's my answer. I think David goes to Jerusalem to fulfill the promises of the Lord to Abraham. And you're going to have to think about this week and see if you think I'm right. But look at verse 6 again. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Now, 
that phrase, the inhabitants of the land. That's key. It's a phrase that shows up repeatedly in the history of Israel with reference to the people whom God promises to drive out before the Israelites. Right? And according to Judges 1, it had been a failure of faithfulness on the part of the Israelites that they didn't, in fact, drive out all the inhabitants of the land. So, in a general sense, what's David doing when he acts against Jerusalem from Hebron, Abraham's town? I think David's doing what Israel failed to do. David was the agent of the fulfillment specifically of God's promise to Abraham. Because listen here to Genesis 15, verses 18 to 21. Just listen, you don't have to turn. These are words likely spoken in Hebron to Abraham in Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Aphorites, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, you know how it ends, and the Jebusites. And if you've ever read through the early history of Israel, you know how often that promise is referenced to the people. How time after time, even as some of those names are changed or omitted in the list, the Jebusites are consistently the last of the occupants of the land that are mentioned. There's probably at least 10 examples of that. I didn't count them. But just so you see one of them, here's Exodus 13, verse 5. When Moses speaks to the people as the people are about to leave from Egypt, and he says in Exodus 13, verse 5, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you. Do you hear that? That's the Abraham connection. A land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month, referring to the Passover in Exodus 13. You fast forward through the history of Israel a bit, and you read in the beginning of Judges that even as Judah wins a victory at Jerusalem in Judges 1 verse 8, they're not able to occupy it. They do not dispossess the Jebusites as Judges 1 verse 21 makes clear. And now, here we are several hundred years later. What's the first recorded action of David as king of Israel? He overruns the Jebusite stronghold. I mean, can you possibly conclude anything different than David goes to Jerusalem to fulfill God's promise to Abraham? And if that's right, I'm trying to suggest to you that David understood that that meant what he was doing was key in bringing about that original great promise to Abraham, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't think you have to work too hard to see how that becomes the case, brothers and sisters, because this is the beginning of the role of Zion in the scriptures. This is the first time the name Zion appears. 
Look again at verse 7. David took hold of the stronghold of Zion, it says. Now, the stronghold is likely a fortress or a citadel located on the ridge of what would be the later city of Jerusalem. But it was that ridge. It was a place. It was overlooking the Kidron Valley that was originally known as Zion. But you would know that Zion is a term of tremendous biblical significance. Zion is the name that would be taken and applied to the hill on the north side of the city on Solomon's day where the temple was built. Mount Zion comes to refer to the Temple Mount. The terms Zion and Mount Zion come to mean the city of Jerusalem itself. It even is a way of talking about God's people, the citizens of Jerusalem. This is Zion has this original specific reference, but in the Bible the turn comes to evoke the concepts of God's promises, His eternal promises, His kingdom. So significant is the concept of Zion in the Bible that in some of the prophets, Zion, in fact, is described as being the very center of Yahweh's kingdom in the age to come. I mean, what's David up to in 2 Samuel 5? Or rather, what's the Lord up to through David in 2 Samuel 5? <clears throat> taking Jerusalem, taking Zion. This is completely foundational to the whole of the future of the kingdom of God, way beyond the life of David or of any of Israel's kings. This goes all the way to the end. Listen to these famous words of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. You can't miss the echoes of Genesis 12 in that, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We're in the new heavens and the new earth there, brothers and sisters. So despite what are truly the tricky details, not only in the background, but also in verses 8 to 10 of our chapter here in 2 Samuel, where you read about this water shaft and the way David would defeat the Jebusites, and there's different renderings of this language, and you could talk all about that and the different meanings that are debated here. It doesn't matter in the sense that the point of 2 Samuel 5 is clear. This is now the city of David. This is now the city of God. This is God's king. Verse 9, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. Now, of course, Jerusalem is strategically positioned between the different tribes, and since the Jebusites had always been in it, it was never owned by any one of the tribes, and there's good political reasons why it makes sense to be in Jerusalem, but... This is the city of God. And David built the city all around, it says, from the Milo inward. Here's another puzzling thing, but probably it's part of the fortifications of the city. This is David's capital. These walls are to be fortified. It's when those walls would be breached later in the history of Israel that you read of the 
lament and the tragedy of the loss of the mission of the people of God. I mean, this is central to what God is doing through the Old Testament. That's all down the road a long way. But the text says now David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is God's king, brothers and sisters. And just as Samuel said in Gilgal, it's all for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Yahweh's promises to Abraham had proven true. The kingdom of God for the blessing of the world has been established now in this moment of the scriptures in the kingdom of David. Abraham's God was with him. And I know that the time's gone and I haven't really even covered a lot of the chapter, but that's okay because I know it was sort of an ambitious thing to try, but more than anything else, I just want you to sense that there are deep biblical currents that are running like roaring rivers at this point in 2 Samuel. And if if I could preach on this chapter for, for, you know, every Sunday for a month, we could connect all of this to Jesus, couldn't we? How David's greater son who had to die in Jerusalem in order to be raised and ascended to the heavenly throne because all of this plugs into the grand storyline of the Bible as God himself in the person of Jesus sits on the throne of David. I mean, it's... It's Revelation 22, verse 6. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. I mean, you keep going. I mean, those of you who really know Genesis know I didn't even say anything about Melchizedek and Salem, which is identified with the same place as Jerusalem. I mean, there's so many pieces that are here. Calvin has six sermons on this chapter, 2 Samuel. I just want you to see that this is the way that the Lord is bringing about his purposes in history. There's more in 2 Samuel 5. It's not all positive. <laughs> You're reminded again that David surely isn't the actual Messiah. He gets so much right. He takes Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It's one of the critical moments of the Bible, but... Even as the Lord is with him, what's David doing? Verse 13, and David took, which is not a positive term with respect to the kings of Israel. Remember Samuel warning about kings taking things. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters are born to David. And there's names that are there like Shammah and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon. Those are Bathsheba's, right? It's all here. The Bible's not has doesn't have rose-colored glasses on when it comes to David. I mean, you remember perhaps Deuteronomy 17, um, the law of kings in Deuteronomy 17 is explicit in verse 17, where it says, "You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, but verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself." lest his heart turn away. It's Deuteronomy 17. I'm not trying to uphold David as the perfect 
king in this chapter where we'll see the impact of David's decision in the course of 2 Samuel, if you know about what's coming. But still, <laughs> this is a grand moment in the sweep of Scripture. And I'll end the sermon on a more positive note because on the whole, 2 Samuel 5 is positive about what's going on. Just verses 17 to 25 to say something about the rest of the chapter. What do we see? We, we see that it was the, the promises of God that had led to the establishment of the kingdom. We talked all about that, but then we see that it will be the power of God that protects it. When inevitably the enemies of the Lord and his anointed come and it happens right away. Opposition to the kingdom comes. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Is that about David? Yes. Is that about Jesus? Yes. It would start right away. I mean, the Philistines hear the news of David's reign. They don't like it. And what follows in chapter 5 is the report then of two victories for David that come not because David is fantastic, but because the Lord tells him exactly what to do. David obeys and the Lord's power preserves his kingdom. It will be by the Lord's guidance and the Lord's power that David is twice victorious. The, the guidance is different, but the victory is the same. And so verse 25 summarizes then the end of our chapter this morning. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The Philistine victory that we were concerned about at the end of 1 Samuel, their occupation of Israel, it's over. By the hand of his servant David, the Lord has saved his people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, just as he'd promised he would do. And so it's the enemies defeated and driven out, and the way is clear for David's long-promised kingdom, which, of course, I'm just trying to say to you is God's kingdom, is established. Brothers and sisters, According to the scriptures, God has again set his king on Zion, his holy hill. The nations still rage. The people's plot against the Lord and his Christ. We who belong to him can remember this victory of God's king from Mount Zion over the Philistines. The power of God will be the thing to protect God's kingdom. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is that ultimately 2 Samuel 5 points us to the future kingdom, to the eternal city of God, to the new Jerusalem, which we know will be a place where God's promises to Abraham of blessing for the nations reach their ultimate fulfillment. That that will be the place whereby the power of God, all defiance of God's kingdom, is finally done away with. This is, as the New Testament makes, New Testament makes clear, our very hope as Christians. That's why the whole Bible ends in Revelation 21, where John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I didn't even say anything about the king of Tyre sending materials to build the palace in Jerusalem. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.